This week on Life and Faith. They make fun of bogans, hey? They say these bogans are so racist. But I grew up with bogans who had to live alongside new refugees and had to settle them in. There was animosity, but there was great love as well. My best friend's father was a One Nation supporter who absolutely loved my brother and I and our family. If we're doing work right, it's a part of life. There's an opportunity to reconnect with spirituality through parenthood. I don't think that there's that many true atheists out there, really. We certainly knew that it was going to lead to war. Welcome to Life of Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. Well, Australia calls itself a multicultural nation. It is in many ways. But how do we live out that diversity, especially when it comes to relating to people who are different from us? Justine, I think you have some concerns in this area. Yeah, I'm a little bit discouraged, (laughs) I have to admit. I know everyone's trying to stop thinking about lockdown, but it did reveal how divided we are in Sydney. And I think that's worth remembering. I think um, a number of us were shocked by these real differences exposed between Sydney's leafy north and wealthy east, where I guess people can often work from home, and southwest Sydney, where often people can't. And of course, residents of southwest Sydney had the harshest COVID restrictions and a heavier police presence in those communities to enforce them. And they had uh, curfews as well, remember, Justine? Yeah, that's right. And, And these communities also tend to be more working class and multicultural. So during the height of lockdown, it was as though you could map disadvantage onto Sydney pretty starkly. There were all these jokes about the latte line that kind of splits uh, the north and the and the east from the west and the south. And it was not at all apparent, I think, that any of us really knew how the other half was living. Yeah, it seemed like every second article was about Sydney as a divided city. But even if you're not living in Sydney, as many of you are not, it's worth considering, isn't it, how successful Australia is at multiculturalism, or not, as the case may be. So while there's lots of diversity as a whole in this country, perhaps there's not much engagement or involvement with each other across cultural difference. Well, today on Life and Faith, we're bringing you Justine's chat with award-winning novelist Alice Pung, who's thought deeply about cultural diversity and what it's like to invite people into a different experience of the world. Justine, tell us about Alice Pung. Well, Alice Pung is a fixture, I think you can say, of the Australian literary scene. She made her debut with Unpolished Gem, which was based on her experience of growing up in a Chinese-Cambodian refugee family. And she also wrote... Her Father's Daughter, which is a memoir of her father's experience living under Pol Pot, and also a novel called Lorinda, which examined race and class dynamics in a private school setting. And she's also edited collections like Growing Up Asian in Australia. Alice's work is studied in university and high school, and she's also a lawyer. But the reason we spoke to Alice was because of her latest novel, 100 Days. And it's a story about Karuna, a 16-year-old, half-Australian, half-Filipino girl who falls pregnant. And you can imagine her mother, who's Filipino, you can imagine how her mother reacts when she finds out. But what you probably won't guess is that Karuna's mother resorts to locking Karuna in their apartment to protect her, which is perhaps 
a quite extreme version of what some people might call confinement. And you might say that their relationship is a really interesting glimpse into a different world and what it's like to navigate different cultures. Yes, look, this is a really fascinating interview. Justine began by asking Alice why she's interested in writing about the lives of people like Karuna. In 100 days, even Karuna says that her life isn't all that interesting. I love being asked this question. I don't get it often. Um, I get asked a lot, you know, why is this, her world so uh, harsh and so, (laughs) you know, (laughs) um, so vulgar at times, so rude, um, depending on the interviewer, so abusive. But I will ask you that in a minute. <laughs> oh, okay, good. But, you know, it's, it's a reality of many people that their lives are not filtered through literature, especially if you're illiterate. And um, Karuna doesn't see herself in books because books are generally, and I'm, I'm not generalising, but they are written mostly by middle-class people, people who have the time and the resources um, to actually write a book. So... There's a wonderful, I think a short story writer who said something like, if aliens were to have a look at um, all our literature of today, if alien forces were to come, they would think that we were a culture obsessed with self-realization, self-obsession, self-discovery, all these things (laughs) related to our feelings, our our feelings of self-actualization. When um, most of what happened in literature in the last century, you know, through revolutions is based on material circumstances of people's lives. You know, the Russian writers and to an extent, even American writers early last century like John Steinbeck. So we've moved further and further away from that, the more comfortable we've become. So I, I just write about the material circumstances of the lives I know best. Yeah, well, in, in that case, Are there connections between Karuna's life and yours? I mean, she's half Chinese, half Australian. She lives in a housing commission. Her mother works two jobs to support her. What, um, how how do you resonate with those particular experiences? Oh, well, I, you know, my mum doesn't read and write like Karuna's mum. And I grew up with a lot of relatives who lived in the housing commission flat. So I know those places inside out. Um, And also I grew up with a lot of friends, Justine, who had very adult responsibilities from a very young age. So um, they were, you know, either 10 or 11 and and dealing with sick family members, some terminally ill, or they came here as unaccompanied minors on a refugee boat, or they were looking after younger siblings, not just babysitting, but full-time looking after them almost. So that was my experience, looking after younger siblings and um, staying at home all the time. Had to stay at home all the time it's not just cultural to, you know, Chinese Cambodian families, lots of my Greek friends, lots of my Italian friends, their parents would say, why do you need to go out? You know, home is safe, got everything you need at home. So that that's how I um, resonate with what Karuna goes through. Yes, there were plenty of times in when reading the novel, I was like shrieking in recognition <laughs> of what oh, you're talking no. about. Oh, no. Um, and for all sorts of reasons. Uh, we'll get to that, more of that in a, in a moment. But I wanted to ask you, you've won awards for your novels and thousands of university and high school students engage with your work as this window into the lives of other people. And I wondered, when you first began writing, was it ever with this deliberate intention of inviting people to experience the world through your eyes? Oh, that's every writer's intent. You do want them to experience the world through your eyes and the eyes of your characters. Um, But to be honest, when I started writing my first book, Unpolished Gem, 
I, I was about 19 when I wrote the first story and about 25 when I finished the book and it came out. So it's, it's a very young adult book because I was a young adult at that time. And I didn't realize, you know, the, the larger world in which I fitted in because I'd grown up in two neighborhoods in Footscray and Braybrook and went to school and then went to university. So it, it's, it's, a very, <laughs> it's a very domestic book. Um, and I think the older I've got, the, the more I've been able to take a macro look at my life, which is probably not a good thing as a writer because I've lost that, that truth telling I had at 20. You know, when you're 20, you think you've discovered the truth and you really um, have no filters because everything is fascinating. And, and sometimes I probably wrote too candidly <laughs> in my first book, but that was a great thing because before that, there were lots of wonderful immigrant narratives published, but they followed a narrative of success, you know, unpolished gem, actually. It's probably the reverse. <laughs> I have a nervous breakdown. My mother suffers depression. My grandmother dies. The three main events are not, you know, progressing towards any form of success whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. One might observe that your own life, however, has taken that route of success, right? Your parents oh. must be incredibly proud of what you've achieved. Oh, that they are, yeah. Um, but my mother still doesn't read and write. Um, that's not to discount the achievement, but it's like having a kid who speaks um, a different language or something. You're proud of them, but you don't understand exactly what they're saying or what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, I, I think they are proud. Let me ask you about your mother, because one of the things I did wanted to know was how has she responded to your work, especially with this latest novel? Because at the centre of it is such an intense controlling, claustrophobic even, relationship between Karuna and her mum. So even if your mum hasn't read your book or doesn't read, how has she understood what you've what you've written? Because you are very candid about the Asian mother, you know? <laughs> but I didn't want to write the tiger mother as well, Justine, because that's just a crass stereotype. Even though the mother in my book is quite crass and quite um, sweary, which is true of um, quite a lot of working class Asian mothers I know and if you were to translate everything they said into English it would be abusive in English you know <laughs> you're, you're nodding your head you completely understand <laughs> to a point my parents were proud of me now I think they still are but to a point they didn't like they stopped being interested because they're like oh yeah there goes another book so I don't think <laughs> my mother's even asked about it she doesn't even know what latest book I have out you because know? <laughs> it's I think it's my 12th book now um and and she's quite funny she looks at the covers and and will tell me which one looks like a real book by how nice the cover is <laughs> so my first book was good but it was a fake book because the cover did, you know that and that's not to make fun of her but when you're illiterate that's how you look at books so that's how you arrange your bookshelf by color or by size you know that kind of thing and I'll be completely honest uh you know my mother is is quite <laughs> so she grew up uneducated and her parents were uneducated and back there were farmers way back you know and, and they migrated to Cambodia and so my grandmother spoke to my mum in the same way my mum speaks to me in the same way quite authoritarian quite um sweary and in, in a manner of giving orders and advice and you know <laughs> so she likes to start her sentences with you listen to me or you know <laughs> that kind of thing so we still have a very similar relationship which I think is easier because I'm 40 years old and it's harder because I'm 40 and you're still 
have, you know, <laughs> that kind of relationship. But you're also on the other side of being uh, like you're a parent as well, right? So you can kind of see the sacrifices that she's made and, and you understand her from a different perspective. And I think Karuna navigates something of a similar conflict herself in the novel. She finally comes to understand that the mother does things out of love, even though if it's not expressed in um, an obvious way. Oh, yeah, of course, Justine. Look, everything that mother does for Karuna is out of love. There is no doubting that mother's love. Her daughter is her life. There's no one else around her. She doesn't like her husband. She doesn't have any friends. Everything she has, she invests in Karuna. So she she has made Karuna literally, metaphorically and materially. Everything Karuna owns um, is owed to her mother. So it is great burdensome debt that a lot of immigrant kids feel towards their parents who when you get older you discover a, a flawed adult um, just like yourself as a as a parent you're I mean I'm a flawed parent well let me ask you why why were you interested in exploring that very fine line between a controlling overprotective love and emotional abuse do you know what I mean like it's like what what interests you about exploring that very blurry space in between the two Oh, it's just a fascinating space and it's not confined to culture as well, hey? Even though if you live in a culture where everyone treats their kids very similarly, you don't see it as abuse. It's just the way your parents love you. But what happens when you take that child outside of their culture, be it um, Cambodia, India, Asia, Korea, you know, even very, very developed countries and put them in Australia or America or Canada you know, or France, uh, where you have permissive parenting and the parents listen to their kids and kids have opinions. Um, I don't think I had an opinion of my own until I was about 20. So, you know, <laughs> I, I was never taught to form opinions. And, and that's the honest truth. Uh, and so I, I wasn't like, I wrote opinions for essays and stuff, but you know, I didn't understand what it was like to formulate an argument because I was never taught that skill your parents told you what to do and you did it, as Karuna says in the book. I have to admit, though, there were some, some moments in the book where maybe Karuna's mother has spoken really harshly to her and I was like, Alice, don't show Asian mums like this. Oh, I know. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, is, is there a burden that comes with representation? Do you know what I mean? Like, do you feel a responsibility? And, so, and what does that add um, when you're trying to deal with an unappealing character. Do you know what I mean? Like people might make assumptions about Asian people based on what they read about this book. But I'm, I know that you're aware of this, but I just want you to explain how you grapple with that and how that comes out in your work. Oh, I, I um, think that's an excellent question. I'm so glad you asked it because I, I thought about this a lot. Um, I think some writers said that writing should be not saying the things that people can already say, but saying the things that people aren't allowed to say. So I, I think as, as a writer from a particular culture, a writer you know, of colour, as they call it these days, I, I owe it to my uh, readers who are non-white to portray the Asian mother in as realistic a way as I can because I'm not writing for a white readership, to be honest. I mean, they might buy my books. Toni Morrison doesn't write for white readership, and some of her characters are quite brutal, you know. Beloved mm. kills her own children to stop the slave owners from getting to them. But um, Karuna's mother, I had to make her real, because otherwise the book would be, um, wouldn't have the emotional resonance it does to my intended audience. 
who are um, women of colour who, who write to me and say, gosh, I thought I was the only one who grappled with whether my mum was abusive or whether she was just flawed or whether she was, you know, I feel sorry for her. But when I, I go home, I really, really dislike her. <laughs> you know, these difficult feelings we've never been allowed to voice because um, white people don't understand them or tell us that we should leave our families forever and that's abuse and you know go cold turkey go no contact uh we don't do that so karuna has to straddle the fine line between living with her mother and putting up with a lot of um crap <laughs> you know? yeah well you said that you weren't necessarily writing for a white liberal audience but it's true that they would love your work, right? And and your, your work has been adopted as a way to invite people into the experience of minorities, so to speak. Um, what do you want to teach perhaps your white audience about the other? Oh, Justin, I love how you ask this question. I'm very grateful for my white liberal audience because they buy books. They're not like Asians who make their kids borrow them from the library because they don't have it. Like, seriously, you know, that's what you do. <laughs> if you only read a book once, why buy a book? So anyhow, they, they buy my books for presents for grandchildren, for nieces, nephews, sisters. Um, and, and, you know, that they will say, oh, your book opened up my eyes to a whole different world. And yet I, I get pissed off because, excuse the language, um, it's opened their eyes to a whole different world because they have the right views. They're completely woke. And then I think, why is it me opening your eyes to a different world? Why don't you have any Asian friends or black friends or poor friends or friends from the other side of the river in the western suburbs? Why do you need me to <laughs> open up your eyes? You know, I write mainly for, for Asian people, for the Sudanese kid in the housing commission flat, for the people in the western suburbs. And yeah, it's this great irony that my books are accessible to them through free means like libraries and, and teachers and being put on school book lists, but my biggest readers are the woke people. And I would um, think it would be a wonderful thing if they brought less of my books and, you know, caught the bus across to Footscray and played basketball with some kids in the commission flats or something. <laughs> so it's, it's my biggest gripe that some people think you can become a good person just by reading books. Books don't change people. I think people change people. You're listening to Life and Faith and we're hearing Justine's interview with Alice Pung, whose latest novel is 100 Days. And just before the break, we heard Alice challenge her readers to buy less of her books and instead to make the effort to meet and get to know people from different backgrounds properly in real life. And this from an author, Justine. Yeah. <laughs> but look, you know, Alice's point is a good one. It's really helpful for people to actually move beyond their own restricted, perhaps protected cultures and to meet others and to encounter their humanity, even if reading the books can be a good initial step. Yeah, and I wanted to ask Alice whether what she was describing actually revealed the real story in some ways of Australia's multiculturalism, that there's a lot of diversity, but not much actual engagement between people of different backgrounds. This is what she said. There is so much diversity, Justine, and you're in Sydney, aren't you? So yes. you've got wonderfully diverse suburbs, which the media likes to make out to be ethnic enclaves. And when they say a place is an ethnic enclave, they 
make it so monocultural, like so Lebanese or so Vietnamese. But I grew up in very similar suburbs like Parramatta and Cabramatta and um, Hornsby. Those suburbs are so diverse that you could have a Lebanese person marrying a Vietnamese person, no questions asked, or, you know, one of my friends is um, married to a Greek Australian, she's Vietnamese, so my, and my sister's um, fiancé is Croatian. So this kind of multiculturalism is um, unselfconscious and it just happens because the government puts all the immigrants in the locations where there, there are jobs and there's factories. So it's, it's by, you know, social policy as well. The least diverse suburbs are the suburbs in the inner city, the suburbs where I currently live because I live at the university where they read Indigenous books at school and they talk about multiculturalism and they love my children's books because I have Asian characters and um, they love my kids, you know, because my kids are Asian. But I think, wow, Australia is really diverse in an unselfconscious way, but the people in power, the people making the media, the people uh, commissioning television shows aren't that diverse. So they say there's a dichotomy or we need more diverse voices. That's not true. They're just not looking hard enough. They're too scared of true diversity. And they make fun of bogans, hey? They say these bogans are so racist. But I grew up with bogans who had to live alongside new refugees and had to settle them in. There was animosity, but there was great love as well. My best friend's father was a One Nation supporter who absolutely loved my brother and I and our family. So there's like contradictions that we live with that some people in very narrow-minded suburbs who think that they're quite woke can't seem to live with we'll say drop that friend yeah so it's a, it's a big paradox isn't it yeah so fascinating and so can i get you to speculate what what stands in the way of fully embracing that cultural diversity what are the obstacles oh so as a writer one of the obstacles justine is i do a lot of mentoring of other authors so i once uh, mentored a really wonderful bosnian author um, a young woman and she had to write two different versions of her book. The first one was was quite dark because her, her mother suffered from bipolar and, and abuse and lo lots of terrible things. Um, and then because she had a very working class voice, no no big publisher wanted to take it on because it was too too much work. They said, we, we don't have the time and resources to um, develop this voice because they're commercial publishers. And, and it took a long time and to the point where she changed it to a young adult book and, and it came out to much success. But people like to talk to the talk, you know, we got to support indigenous voices and, and Asian voices and working class voices. But to support those, you realise your working class authors, your Indigenous authors and your marginalised authors aren't on equal footing. Some don't even have computers and that's not an exaggeration <laughs> and they don't have the time. <laughs> so you, you've really got to have um, people in place to develop those voices. And this is the terrible thing because I'm what they call an established author. My first draft to my publishers can actually look quite rough. And they'll still read it and put their best efforts in because I've already sold book, you know. <laughs> so the established authors can actually not care that much about their first drafts. It's the emerging authors who have to get it perfect. And if English is not your first language or if you've been through a horrific traumatic event and you're writing about it, of course your voice is not established and it's not the most, you know, refined language. So you need to develop those voices. 
and not get ghostwriters. I then asked Alice how faith fits into this picture of cultural diversity. If there's difficulties in supporting emerging writers of colour, then what about navigating people's different religious beliefs? And I wanted to know this because in Alice's novel, 100 Days, before Karuna's parents divorce, there's this scene that shows that the Buddhist shrine that belongs to Karuna's mum is kept outside the house. It's almost as though it's been banished to the backyard. But after Karuna's dad leaves her mum, the shrine suddenly is in the flat with Karuna and her mum. So I asked Alice, what's going on in that picture? It doesn't exactly bode well for religious diversity. Oh, um, Australia was not very religiously diverse, you know, back in the 1980s or 1970s. And Buddhism was, you know, the irony is um, Karuna's mother's has all these superstitions, yeah? Yeah. So her father believes that her religion is just another superstition because Buddhism wasn't well understood. To this day, it probably isn't that well understood because a lot of Westerners think, oh, we'll join Buddhism because it's the feel-good religion because Catholicism is too severe. They don't understand that every religion, if you follow it, um, is actually severe because you have to do things against your basic instincts or even against your propensity to be hedonistic. Even Buddhism is a is a very um, ascetic religion. <laughs> you give a lot of things up to feel liberation. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard in interviews you've said that Buddhism involves a lot of self-discipline. Can you give us a, a snapshot of, of what that means for you? Yeah, yeah, it involves a lot of self-discipline. Um, even the Dalai Lama said to a bunch of people who left their religion, mostly they leave Judaism or Catholicism to go to Buddhism. He says, you're not going to find enlightenment here, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you're always searching. What's wrong with Judaism? What's wrong with Catholicism? So to get to the heart of it, it was too severe. And he, Buddhism is quite severe because you have to control your thoughts. <laughs> you know, if you control your thoughts, you, you change the world. In my experience, um, you know, I have to keep constantly remind myself not to get carried away <laughs> with my thoughts or even with negative thoughts because they're, they're not real. And it, it helps me reflect on being a better parent, I suppose. I, I think... Um, this sounds depressing, but one of the major tenets of Buddhism is life is impermanent. <laughs> Every day you're, you're heading closer and closer towards the end. So if you don't reflect on the impermanence of things, you don't reflect on the impermanence of your kids being so young for such a finite amount of time, you take everything for granted and, you know, <laughs> yeah. Can I ask you though? Um, it, it seems to me that if you're if you're having a hard time, then it's wonderful to remember that there is that impermanence to things. So even that suffering is impermanent. Yes, but that's true. Yeah. Does that also mean that the joys you feel they're always tinged with some kind of like sadness, maybe at their passing, or or how do you navigate joy if everything is impermanent? Oh, I think in Buddhism, if you cling to joy, then your joy is always tinged with sadness because you're scared of losing it. But if you um, reflect on, like, you know, you think, oh, this is impermanent, I better make the most of it, <laughs> then you're not clinging to joy. So it's not tinged with that grasping, that sense of, oh, I wish I had more of this, this is sad, this is going to end. You're like, oh, how wonderful, I've got this joy in my life, I better make the most of it before, before it ends because it's here and now. So... I, I guess that's 
the way to go about it. I don't do it very skillfully a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're pretty normal in, in all people of faith and how yeah. skillful we are or are not in navigating it. Um, let me ask you, there's, a, there's this scene where Karuna's mum, she's very angry because Karuna's almost called the, the school to intervene because she's been locked in by her mum. And so Karuna's mum finds herself praying quite violently to the Buddhist shrine and... <laughs> Again, going back to the cultural diversity, how do you work out how to portray people's religious experience without reinforcing its strangeness to a secular Western audience? Because the Buddhism of Karuna's mum is not the kind of Western Buddhism where you've got a Buddha at the beach house, like you've got a Buddha statue oh, yeah, in, at okay. a beach and house. And it's peace and serenity. Yeah. yeah, it's very different. So how do you portray that without making people think this is strange superstition? Oh, well, people who aren't familiar with it will just think it's strange superstition, um, Justine, but that's okay as well because I had to portray the honesty of that. Southeast Asian Buddhists, ah, they pray quite violently because they had to escape a genocide. They had to make sure their relatives arrived here alive and not dead on the boat, you know. So their prayers are tinged with extreme desperation and um, their incense lighting is extreme and everything is amped up a notch in Southeast Asia if you're a Buddhist as opposed to if you're um, a Japanese Zen Buddhist and you can go in the forest and meditate. It's very different. Um, just like you've got different strains of Christianity which are very different as well and some people would say gosh this particular form of Christianity is very unusual so I don't mind if people think that this form of Buddhism is unusual. It's uh, what Southeast Asians used to get by. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's how people live. Yeah. Um, I, I know that Tim Costello, who's the former World Vision CEO and who also works with us at CPX these days, he often says that multiculturalism is at the same time multi-faithism, yes. that if you're going to embrace cultural diversity, this will also involve embracing religious diversity. Do you resonate with that? Oh, I resonate with a lot of what Tim Costello says. And in fact, he, his book, Streets of Hope, which was published about 20 years ago, got me into law, like <laughs> got me oh, studying right. law, like got me continuing on my law degree because I reached a, a point where I thought I'd go into teaching because I'm better suited there. But I read Streets of Hope. And one of the things he said was that the law locks people out. If it was in plain English, anyone could represent themselves in court, but it's not. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's so true. And it, Australia is a multi-faith country. Yeah, <laughs> I agree with him completely. You've already alluded to the idea that in Buddhism, everything is impermanent. But can I ask you, is there something you wish were permanent or long-lasting? Oh, um. I don't know. That that's an, an excellent question. I've I've never thought <laughs> thought much about you know something that endures forever. Well, you want your kids to outlive you. Um, but one of the most interesting things I learnt was from uh, you know Andrew Denton had a show an, a number of years back, and he interviewed a young woman who was dying, and this is this is the heart of my Buddhist faith. So she said, "Look, I I used to care about other things." But now I don't care about material things anymore. The meaning for my life now is to string together a series of meaningful experiences. And those words really stuck with me. And I thought that that's exactly like that. That is the crux of Buddhist practice is to make your life into a string of meaningful experiences. And once you have that at the center of your practice, you know, I think the material things 
Um, they're not unimportant because you need them to live, but you don't put them at the center. So <laughs> you're not worshiping yeah. prestige because it's impermanent or, or wealth or your car or whatever makes <laughs> makes us temporarily happy. I think that there's there's probably lots of differences between Christianity and Buddhism, but there's a lot of similarity there in what you've just said. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Alice. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Life and Faith from CPX with me, Simon Smart, and Justine Toe. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and resonated with it, even if Alice had some challenging things to say about what faces us when it comes to navigating cultural and religious diversity. Alice Pung is the author of, most recently, 100 Days. She's also published several other works of fiction, including Lorinda, which won the New South Wales Premier's Literary Prize, and her debut novel, Unpolished Gem. She also edited the collection Growing Up Asian in Australia. We'd love to hear from you what you thought about this episode, or maybe if you could pass it on to someone you think might get a lot out of it. Please leave us a rating or review as well. It helps our work find a new audience. Next week. We underestimate the positive impact we can bring to other people's lives. We also entertain this idea that I'm the only one who's suffering like this. And that's simply not true. One in four Australians are suffering from significant amounts of loneliness. So the lonely people aren't alone. Lonely people are experiencing things that many, many Australians are experiencing.